This is Our American Stories, and our own Alex Cortez was fortunate to spend a few hours with Julie Hirsch, the author of Struck by Living from Depression to Hope, interviewing Julie in her Dallas home earlier last month. And he now brings us a feature on her incredible life story. I tried to kill myself three times. The third time had to work. My SUV idled with promise. I closed my eyes and tried to relax. Guitar strums filled my finely upholstered inner sanctuary. My break-of-day mission kept the music at a distance. I couldn't feel the notes. The sound no longer rumbled in my chest. My fingers brushed against the smooth bucket seats while my nose twitched, filled with the scent of untainted leather. The Escalade ran in park. The garage door closed. My map showed a permanent destination. I leaned forward and my seatbelt pulled. Idiot! I unbuckled the belt. No policeman patrolled my garage. No need for a safety harness. I wanted to end my life. I wanted death with no blood, fast and certain. Julie Hirsch's first attempt, five months earlier, would have involved blood, and it wasn't certain. I took a knife and went in my backyard. You were not needed. Julie wrote of the voice that taunted her head for months. They're better off without you, it continued. And I was thinking about slitting my wrists. Her suicide note was written, Julie recalled in her book. I took a deep breath and held out my wrist. Then the argument broke out in my head. Do you know what you're doing? Well, no, I shook my head. How long does it take to bleed to death? Do you know that? Won't someone find you first? I don't... Don't you have to be in water to keep the blood flowing? Won't your blood clot? You'll just have the scars. Everyone will know you tried and screwed up. The blade rested on my skin, but I couldn't apply force, couldn't silence the arguments long enough to cut. I stared at the knife. Ken found me. Ken is her husband. When he found me, I was basically sitting there thinking about it. And so he stopped me at that point. His eyes moved from fear to anger to pain to shame. In less time than it took me to drop the knife, Julie wrote, my actions hurt him. In an instant, our relationship had irrevocably changed. I think for someone who's actually thinking about suicide, if you could imagine that thought constantly running through your head almost to the point where it's every waking moment, that's what it feels like to be depressed enough that you would consider suicide. After her first child was born, her son, Julie had postpartum depression, but she didn't know that's what it was. Nine months after his birth, on Easter Sunday, she wrote into her journal, thoughts about suicide for the first time this week. 
That's so crazy. My life is full. I have a husband who loves me, a beautiful child, and yet somehow my life feels uncertain. Growing up with a modest upbringing, Julie now lived in a lavish existence that her husband's success brought, and she felt out of place in it. They had recently built a 10,000 square foot dream house, his dream house, that she was uncomfortable with, that she was uncomfortable in, uncomfortable in your own home. Julie wasn't working, and she didn't even have to work to take care of the house. There were people for that. She wrote at the time, I prayed for an inspired life. While I meditated with palms open, Forbes magazine featured Ken in an article. We were on different tracks. Ken's route created more wealth, more recognition, more possessions. He reveled in his business success. I was happy for Ken, but felt overshadowed. I wanted to be more than Ken Hirsch's wife or the mother of Ken Hirsch's children. Julie had lost her identity. She had lost her sense of purpose, and she tried to commit suicide a second time when they spent the summer in Santa Fe. I had gone up to this place in New Mexico that I had hiked a lot. It's a place called Raven's Ridge. So I went up to that point, and the cliff was a lot less straight down than I remembered it. I was thinking, great. It's not going to kill me. I'm going to end up being a paraplegic and depressed. And so I was thinking clearly enough to think, okay, that's going to be worse than how I am today. And so I went back down the mountain from that point. And actually, I mean, there's a weird scene that I describe in the book where I go down and then I go out to dinner with my husband and some friends for sushi and act like nothing happened. And she delayed this attempt for a reason that you might not expect. My sister, she's a great artist, occupational therapist, very caring person. And she has also suffered from depression as well. And she was going to come to New Mexico to visit us in 2001. And I wasn't going to kill myself while she was there because I know she loves art and I wanted her to love Santa Fe as much as I did. And so that's why I didn't do it, you know, because I didn't want to ruin Santa Fe for my sister, not because I thought her life might be devastated because I was gone. She just, you know, I mean, it's totally illogical. It doesn't make sense. Three months later, home in Dallas, Julie tried to think of a new way the certain bloodless way to end her life. And wrote of the moment, I stepped into my house in search of the method. Each room presented options, but none felt right. A fall? Maybe I can make it look like an accident. Right. Maybe on the first try, but not the third. Unable to end my life, I ran an errand. We needed milk. When we come back, more on Julie Hirsch's story, author of Struck by Living, From Depression to Hope. This 
This is Our American Stories, and nothing's out of bounds here. And depression touches so many families and so many of our lives. And that's why we're sharing this story with you. If it can help a life, help a family, God bless. Alex continues with Julie Hirsch here and her story of trying to commit suicide, not once, not twice, but three times. When we left off, Julie was struggling to figure out the method for trying the third time, so she ran an errand. Why does my heart go on beating? On the ride home, Julie recalled in her book, I turned off the radio. Focus! Thoughts strained, as if in need of oxygen, I pulled my car into the garage, discouraged. Then the idea hatched right as the garage door shut. Death by carbon monoxide. I felt like um, I, I felt like the housekeeper would find me, not my family, and that would be better. And not that I disliked the woman who was helping us with our house, but I thought she could handle it better than my family could handle it. Um, and so that's what it was. I mean, it's 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 very illogical. I think one of the things that I try to explain to people that if you try to untangle the why and you've never been in that state, you're going to be very, very frustrated. It's almost um, like talking to a blind man and saying, why can't you see this? Why can't you see this? Well, you're blind. I mean, you're somebody who's deeply, deeply depressed. Their brain gets on a different track that they, like I did, even though I, you know, clearly my children would have been worse off, even if I was a terrible mother, they would have been worse off if I killed myself in my own home than if I had lived. But what happens is somebody who's in the deepest, darkest part of depression, they don't think like that anymore. They just think of, as I did, oh, Ken, Ken will remarry. The kids will have a better mother than me because I'm a horrible mother. I'm just, you know, I don't deserve to live. I'm sure I'm inflicting all kinds of psychological damage on them already by being who I am. And everybody would be so much better off if I weren't here. After she chose this third method, Julie says she can barely remember her almost last day on this earth. What did I say to my children? My husband. Did I make love to my husband? I don't know. The next morning, as her husband was gone and her kids were asleep, Julie tried, painfully, to end her life. She was in the garage for over an hour. Then, her housekeeper Margaret's car rolled up. Fuck! Julie shouted to herself. And she told Margaret what she had tried to do, even though she didn't have to. Margaret hadn't noticed. So after Margaret came home, after the, the car incident, um, you told her and you wrote you weren't sure why. Can you talk about that more? Did you think that innately inside of you, you wanted to live and, and that's why you told her? Yeah, I, I mean, I think so. I think, you know, I know I, I, I'm not sure if I innately wanted to 
liver. I just was so disgusted with the whole thing. I mean, it's... Um, I'd like to think that I I innately wanted to live, but I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. That's a great. I would love to go back. I, no, I wouldn't love to go back in time, but I that would you know. There's certain things of it that I'd love to go interview myself in the moment and say, what were you thinking? After this third suicide attempt, Julie's doctor recommended electroconvulsive therapy, better known as ECT. Open your mouth. This will keep you from biting your tongue. Now bite down on it. Her perception of which, her misperception of which, singularly came from the Jack Nicholson movie, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. You ready? Nicholson writhed, Julie recalled. A rag stuffed in his mouth, he shook uncontrollably. The image had stayed with me for more than 20 years. On the ride home, Ken wanted my answer. I looked out the window. Well, Ken turned towards me, eyes off the road. The road! What? Can you keep your eyes? Jesus, you're trying to kill yourself, but you're worrying about my driving? Don't you see anything wrong with this? The kids need you. He softened, stared ahead. They need both of us. I need you. You think I'll get better? I glanced at Ken, then stared out of the windshield. But this is who I am. This is who I've always been. Ken drove with one hand on the wheel, green eyes fixed on white lines as they flashed past. Julie, this isn't you. It's your depression talking. I hated that expression. It sounded like some pop psych soundbite, almost as bad as suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. There's someone else for you. The person they wanted was an act I couldn't sustain. You're young, rich, plenty of women will want to marry you. Ken pounded the steering wheel and swerved. The man in the battered white Chevy Impala next to us snarled and flipped me off. I pretended he didn't exist. You have two choices. Do ECT or I go. I can't take it anymore. I hated him for this. Backed into a corner, I had to say yes. My depression-controlled brain reasoned. My children could weather my suicide, but not a divorce. Okay, I'll do ECT. Ken nodded. He knew not to talk past the sale. The next few weeks were painful. Airplanes crashed into the Twin Towers, the Pentagon, in a field in western Pennsylvania. Days before, I entered the locked psychiatric ward. While the rest of the world gaped in horror, I nodded. It was it was very surreal to um, see. You know, I wanted to die so badly, and to see people um, leaping from buildings, and I was just thinking, "Gosh, I wish I could be." You know, all these good people being killed. And I'm 
basically not contributing, why why couldn't we just trade places? And why why am why am I here versus not there? Um, and it's again uh, that's an illogical thing to think. Um, you know, I'm sure everybody else in the world was thinking, oh, I'm so glad I'm not there. And I was thinking, I wish I could have trade places so that somebody else could be here and I could be there because my life has no meaning anymore. ECT is a last resort treatment for depression where electric currents are passed through the brain and its effect is essentially like hitting a reset switch in the brain. And Julie told me that it works for 80% of patients and usually requires 6 to 10 sessions for a sustained lift of depression. But Julie was different. Everything changed for her after the first time. First session I had, I woke up and I was just thinking, oh my gosh, you know, how could I, I possibly thought killing myself was a great idea? Um, you know, I've done terrible things in my life, but I don't desire, deserve to die from them. Um, and yet 24 hours earlier, I was convinced that I should die for them. So to me, that's, there's something strange happening in my brain that changed that course immediately. Then I could do the psychotherapy and all the other things to stay well. In case you're unfamiliar with the term, psychotherapy is treatment by psychological means rather than medical ones, where you develop habits to respond to situations in healthy ways. I had to get off, you know, I always use the analogy of the cardiac arrest. I had to get out of cardiac arrest before you could say, oh, you should really eat better and you should sleep. I was in cardiac arrest, but with depression as opposed to my heart. And when we come back, we continue Julie Hirsch's story and what courage she has to share it the way she is here and... Again, Julie Hirsch's story here on Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with Julie Hirsch's remarkable story, and all from her book, by the way, Struck by Living, From Depression to Hope. Get it on Amazon.com. Again, Struck by Living, From Depression to Hope. We continue with Julie's story. My velocity of recovery made everyone nervous. Even as I sparred with Ken about the validity of the new me, I had my own doubts. With ECT, I felt better almost instantly. Why? How could I want to kill myself one day and then the next day understand the futility of suicide? I have the same life, the same body, even the same mind. 
What caused my depression? Hormones, some brain chemical malfunction, genetic disposition. I couldn't ask these questions and not face the hardest one. Will it happen again? And although the questions were dawning, I was determined to guard my life against recurrence. Part of that came through the help of Dr. Yvonne Wolf. She was just incredibly wise. She's a psychotherapist. And one that wanted to understand her family of origin. And with that information, helped Julie understand why she reacts the way she does to the world around her. I spoke with Julie about one of the past episodes she explored with Dr. Yvonne when she was just a young girl and was at Bethesda Navy Hospital with pneumonia. A doctor um, used the fact that I was a virgin as part of his, grand not grand rounds, but it felt like grand rounds. He brought a bunch of interns in, and first he wouldn't believe that I was a virgin. Um, and I think I was 15 or 16 years old at the time. And, you know, I had mature a little bit early, but, you know, I, I, I look like a woman, but, and, and this is actually kind of an interesting part of the book because now I think it's probably hard to understand because I was pretty naive that I didn't question this doctor's authority to do what he did. Um, but I basically was alone in the hospital. My parents, you know, there were five children. My dad was working. My mom had to go home and take care of the other kids. And so I was left um, by myself in the hospital. And so this doctor found out I was a virgin and he basically um, performed uh, a pap smear on me, the first pap smear I'd ever had in front of a bunch of interns. And he sort of, you know, put my legs in the stirrups. I was exposed to... um, You know, I I guess it was a group of, I mean, it was so long ago, you know, maybe 10, maybe eight people. And so he just sort of waved his hand and said, this is a virgin. You won't see very many like these. Julie added in her book, I didn't cry. Something shut down, detached. As the interns whispered and my doctor paraded my body like a freak at the circus sideshow. I've had so many women say, oh my gosh, that's just horrific. I can't. And I've had a couple of men saying, so what's the big deal? I don't get it. Especially like, given what he whispered to you, too. Yes, yes. Now you know what it feels like. Yeah, I mean, it was just really, you know, I, I think he, you know, you talk about sexual abuse, and I really... I think things like that go on that I I was just so in shock about it because you don't expect that from somebody in authority. Um, I, I, after, you know, and I didn't talk to anybody about it um, until college, like late in college. Um, And one of my really good friends, Chris Cervanek, who I'm still really good friends with, um, a woman um, who was pre-law, I, I can't even remember why we started talking about the story, but we did. And she looked at me and she goes, that's rape. And I said, no, it's not rape. It was, you know, it was a metal object. It wasn't, you know, he didn't 
And she said, no, that's, that's called rape. And I, I never really even thought of it like that. I still, in a way, have a hard time calling it rape because for me, that's, I don't know, um, would involve body connection. Um, but I remember telling my, my dad and he was so angry. You know, I was like, could you imagine your, you know, you, do you have girls? Who, yeah, two, my, my two Oh my gosh, you imagine yeah. if your daughter, I mean, if, if Ken, that happened to Ken, I think he might get a gun and go hunt the guy down. I mean, he, my dad was so angry, and he tried to find out who the doctor was. But by then, it was, yeah. you know, six years later, and they, Bethesda wouldn't have, it was a military hospital, and they're not going to cooperate with yeah. a situation like that. Um, so talk about how that, that's it, just one example that you talk about in the book of yeah. bearing the pain. Yeah, and I just, you know, what's really interesting is until I went through psychotherapy, I just, you know, that was one afternoon of my life, and I had no idea how much of an impact that had on me. Um, and, and a lot of it is because of the age I was and how defenseless I felt, and... Um, but what what uh, Dr. Yvonne did was she, um, I mean, we just talked and talked and talked and talked about this till the and I cried and cried about it. That I felt really stupid that I was crying over one afternoon of my life. But it was a significant afternoon in her life, and it was representative of how she handled trying events. Instead of reconciling with her pain, she buried it. She attempted to bury it deep in her being, but it was still there. And all of that pain from all the trials in her life came back to bite her. She now knows not to do that anymore. And Julie wasn't alone in hiding her feelings and hiding her depression. She writes, Depression is everywhere. Most people are waiting for someone else to break the ice. Our fear of rejection looms larger than the rejection itself. And what an insight. Our fear of rejection looms larger than the actual rejection itself. Everybody talks so much about this issue of stigma, and what I have found is I can count on one hand the number of negative reactions, really mean reactions I've gotten to being open about this, and there's been literally thousands of people who have either shared their story or, um, I mean, really too many to count. I can't, and it's kind of embarrassing sometimes because so many people feel like, oh, you're the only one who understands my story. And then they'll, they'll see me two years later and they'll say, oh, remember I told you my deepest, darkest secret. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I think I remember it because the reality is one in four you know, there's probably one in four people who are out there suffering with depression. Uh, the number of suicides uh, in the last CDC report has exceeded the number of mortality rates um, from breast cancer in our country. Mm. Um, so it is, the, so more people are dying by suicide in our country than breast cancer. Over 40,000 deaths from breast cancer a year and almost 43,000 from suicide. 
And so we, I really believe we need to stop hiding this because literally the person next to you has had some exposure to this. And if we start treating this as a thing that a lot of people have and we need to get to the answer, we're going to find the answer. Rise like the day I'll rise up in spite of the age. I will rise a thousand times. This is Our American Stories, Julie Hirsch's story. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and now the final portion of Alex's feature on the extraordinary Julie Hirsch. Writing her book, Struck by Living, was therapeutic for Julie, and others tell her it's been therapeutic for them, too. This happens all the time, and one of the my favorites that gets repeated is, I've read this book, and it's just like me. And the weird thing is I've had, you know, teenagers that were totally gothed out with pierced noses and earrings say that. I've had (laughs) professional businessmen tell me that. I've had, just yesterday, a woman who's 30 years old and really struggling. Um, The other favorite class of things that happens is two things. One, when people tell me, I finally understand my sister or my brother or something like that. And then the other thing people will say, your book saved my life. And usually um, those were people who were considering ECT and were afraid to do it. And they did it and it it helped them. And How many so, people would you say that's happened with? Oh gosh. I don't know. We have a little connect support group in Dallas, and I don't know. I always push back so hard on that. But there's, I mean, even in our little connect group, I know five or six people have said that. And then, you know, I've had people from all over the country tell me that. And I try not to keep count because it's not about a keeping count kind of thing. That's the power of storytelling. It's imitative power. Someone reading or listening to her story can see that they can save their life, too. In addition to Julie's remarkable book, she and her husband, Ken, are using their own wealth to fund research that they hope will lead to a better detection of depression and also better personalized treatment. So if you look back in 2001, which for me was by far the most serious episode of depression I've had, Um, So I went into my primary care physician in January of that year, and I said, something's wrong with me. I can't sleep. I've, you know, I've lost, I'm losing weight, and I can't control it. You know, I'm apathetic about everything, where I'm usually very, you know, I'm a pretty fun person. (laughs) I like doing stuff. 
And, you know, Ken Newsom, so my physician took a blood test, did a couple things, and said, there's nothing wrong with you, go on home. So what if a primary care physician had tools to say, ooh, okay, now I, I think, I hope, most primary care physicians, if they see somebody who's like that, they'll know to say, okay, you're having issues with depression. Here's, here's what you need to think about getting better. Let's look at sleep. Let's look at exer- exercise. Let's get you set up with a good psychotherapist. And then maybe we'll need to think about medication depending on how, how things work out. My, it was my sister-in-law who basically said, you're depressed, you need to get on medication right away. Now, unfortunately, that was probably almost three months later, and I started with a psychotherapist too, and it was just, you know, at that point, I, was, I kind of had waited to the point where I was sort of at stage three cancer, and let's start the roulette wheel of trying medication and figuring out if you can, part of the research we're funding now is to adequately detect and then adequately direct people to the right class of treatment. It's just that the challenge we have today is we don't have good enough tools to say, ooh, based on your biotype, you would do better on this class of medications versus this one. They. I don't know if you know this, but basically the handbook is, oh, you have depression? Let's, if you're a doctor, you'd say, oh, let's put them on a serotonin-based antidepressant. That doesn't work, let's double it. Then let's triple it. Then let's put them on another force. And you may not have a serotonin problem, but the problem is the doctors, they're not being mean, they just don't know. And I'm learning that actually most of medicine is like this, that the doctors are doing the best they can, but people really need to be an active participant in their wellness because there's no clear tool yet. We're working on them, and I think they will get there eventually to tell you what thing to do. And there is no, it really needs to be personalized medicine by biotype, but we don't have the technology that we're there yet. But I, I'm really convinced in the next you know, I would hope five years, 10 years, we're going to get a lot further along than we are today. We're at the end of the story, and Julie wrote that she wanted the end of her story to be, quote, on the mountaintop, my depression conquered. I bound my words with a black spiral cord and sent my story to 50 of my friends. In that first version of this book, I had depression licked. With the help of therapy and medication, I'd gone without a serious dip back into depression for four years. Had gone. Julie then read to me the revised part of her story. When I picked up Andrew from school that day, he knew something was wrong. Then 12 years old, he knew what had happened to me during the previous depression. I had told him. Despite his age, I thought he should understand mental illness. Depression ran and runs deep in my family. Although I didn't want to scare him, it seemed irresponsible not to let him know the chance of genetic transference. We pulled into the main garage and got out of the car. Mom, he asked, is your depression back? I looked into those deep blue eyes of his, yellow flecks around the Irish. Yes, I'm sorry, my depression is back. 
That's okay, Mom. He held his palms up as if he had the answer. Just go to the doctor, do that shock thing, and take your medicine. What's the big deal? What is the big deal? Why couldn't I see my depression like that as a disease to be addressed? You're right, ECT. That's all I have to do. Yet somehow I didn't believe ECT would work again. He touched my arm. You'll be okay, Mom. I smiled. My son turned away from me, not sure what else he should say. I reached out and squeezed his shoulder. Hey, Andrew, how'd that book end? A Wrinkle in Time. Andrew shook his head in disgust. Oh, that book was so stupid. The author couldn't figure out how to end it, so she just made up some dumb ending. Really? I strained to remember. I'd read the book over 25 years ago. How'd the book end? The dad was saved by love. How brain dead is that? Saved by love? Yeah, love. Can you believe it? I, I brushed back his thick brown hair. My son looks like me. Dark hair and brows, light eyes, square jaw. Andrew, I wonder if a 12-year-old boy could possibly understand what I wanted to say. Sometimes the only reason I get through the day is because I love you, and I know you love me. He squinted, a 12-year-old smirk. Huh? He raised one eyebrow, perplexed, as though he wanted me to say something more, but he didn't. Instead, he turned away from me and shook his head and walked into the house. As usual, he left the door open. I did great. Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, I haven't. No, no, no. That's just. Um, yeah, they're both. My children are really amazing, and I had a, a similar situation with my daughter this summer because I uh, I relapsed over the summer, and I you know, said something to her where I basically said, you know, if anything happens to me, it's not out of lack of love for you. Yeah. And we were running, and she basically looked at me, and she goes, Mom, we're going to get back to Dallas. You're going to go to the doctor, and you can't talk to me like that. You're going to get wow. better. And I just thought, wow, what composure for somebody who is 20 years old to say that to her mother. And she, um, she and Daniel, Ken had to go on a business trip. She and Daniel were actually the ones who got me to the psychiatric ward, had me checked in, and she was just steely about it. And I think part of the reason she could be is from the time they were five and seven years old, we've talked about depression as a disease and something that can be managed. From that young, wow. Yeah, and they, they believe it, and they've seen it. And so they look at me like someone having a heart attack, and they're like, no, you're going to the doctor. This is this is how you take care of it, and it's it's just really powerful to see because I think if more families could understand that, we could all help each other stay alive. And great job, Alex, on that, and beautiful storytelling by Julie Hirsch. What a beautiful and remarkable story, and it touched my family deeply. This same story, a beautiful niece, Tamara. We didn't know just how serious her depression was because she didn't tell anybody, one friend and one friend alone. And one day she succeeded. 
She killed herself with a handgun. So if you're listening and this has helped, if it's changed one life, helped one family, thank you, Julie, for sharing. And it's a it's something that touches every family in this country. And the shame of it, the shame of it, is why, well, not enough of us talk about it. But here on this show, we will be talking about it. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. If depression has touched your family and or suicide, share it with us. We'll share it. We'll share your story here on Our American Stories. our American stories and it's time for our this day in music history segment as always well it's Jesse digging into things that have everything to do and anything to do with music here on our American stories take it away Jesse this day in music history 1962 Elvis Presley started a two week run at number one on the US singles chart with his song Good Luck Charm His fifth number one hit of the sixth. Want your kiss, cause I just can't miss with a good luck charm like you. Come on and be my little good luck charm. The song was written by Aaron Schroeder and Wally Gold, recorded at RCA Studio B in Nashville, Tennessee, by Presley in 1961. 1967, working at Abbey Road Studios in London. The Beatles completed the sessions for their Sgt. Pepper's album. The final recordings were a short section of gibberish and noise which would follow the song A Day in the Life. They recorded assorted noises and voices, then cut up and randomly reassembled the edits backwards. At John Lennon's suggestion... They also added a high-pitched whistle that was only audible by dogs. These sounds were omitted from the American version of the album. And in 1969, Janis Joplin appeared at the Royal Albert Hall in London. Her first London appearance, with English rock band Yes supporting, Joplin gave a performance that would live in memory as one of the most exciting happenings of the 1960s countercultural era. would be Joplin's only trip to England as a solo artist before her death just a year later on October 4th of 1970. 1973, Tony Orlando and Don started a four-week run at number one on the U.S. singles chart with Tie a Yellow Ribbon Around the Old Oak Tree. 
It became the biggest seller of 1973, selling over 6 million copies. The song was based on a true story of a prisoner who wrote to his wife asking her to tie a yellow ribbon around an oak tree in the town square in White Oak, Georgia, if she still loved him. Now the whole damn bus is cheering And I can't believe I see A hundred yellow ribbons around the This day in music history, 1984, Phil Collins started a three-week run at number one on the U.S. Singles Chart with a theme song from Against All Odds. How can I just let you walk away, just let you leave without a trace, when I stand here taking every breath. It was Phil's first U.S. number one and number two in the U.K. Against All Odds won the Grammy Award for Best Pop Vocal Performance was nominated for Song of the Year and for an Academy Award as well as for a Golden Globe, both in the Best Original Song categories. This day in music history, Paul McCartney played in front of 184,000 fans at the Maracana Stadium in Rio de Janeiro, creating a new world record for the largest crowd attending a rock concert. In 1990, Sinead O'Connor started a four-week run at number one on the U.S. Singles Chart with her version of the Prince song, Nothing Compares to You. The track was also a number one hit in 18 other countries. The video is shot in Paris and consists almost solely of a close-up on Sinead O'Connor's face and bald head as she sings those lyrics. Towards the end of the video, two tears roll down her face. It won Best Video at the 1990 MTV Music Video Awards, the first video by a female artist to win this category. In 2007, Doris Richards died of cancer. The 91-year-old mother of Rolling Stones guitarist Keith Richards bought her son his first guitar for his 15th birthday. He learned some chords from her father, Gus Dupree, a musician who instilled him with an early passion for music. And this day in music history in 2015, Phil Rudd, drummer of ACDC, changed his plea to guilty on a charge of threat to kill in a court of New Zealand. Now, the court heard Rudd was unhappy about his album's launch party and asked for a former employee to be, quote, taken out. He had previously denied the charge. He also pleaded guilty to cannabis and methamphetamine possession. And this day in music history in 2016, 
Prince was found dead at his home in Minnesota at the age of 57 after police were summoned to his Paisley Park estate and found his body in an elevator. The highly acclaimed and influential musician became a global superstar in the 1980s with albums such as 1999, Purple Rain, and Sign of the Times. Prince recorded more than 30 albums. And that's this day in music history. And great job as always, Jesse, and we love all things music. Go to our This Day in History segments, by the way. There are so many on music. And, of course, there is always our The Story of a Song. And this is Lee Habib. This is our American stories. All of our stories related to music. Most of them, that is, inspired by Jesse. And thanks, Jesse, for all you do for us here. And thanks to the team. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And regularly, we like to talk to Lenora Skenazy, who's the author of a book and blog, Free Range Kids, and a contributor to Reason.com. And her TV show, World's Worst Mom, airs on the Discovery Life channel. And we're fortunate that the head of this movement, and we hope that Free Range Kids is and will become an even bigger movement, uh, the freerangekids.com is where, by the way, you can find Lenore. And Lenore describes the movement as, quote, fighting the belief that our children are in constant danger from creeps, kidnapping, germs, grades, flashers, frustration, failure, baby snatchers, bugs, bullies, men, sleepovers, and or the perils of a non-organic grape. <laughs> and I just love that. Thanks for being here, Lenore. Oh, what a pleasure, Lee. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Uh, what we want to do is regularly just drill down with a, a single story. Um, and just so people know uh, how Lenora got the term, the world's worst mom, she allowed her nine-year-old to ride the subway alone. And this created mayhem in the New York media. And that's why she's doing what she's doing now, the reaction to the reaction. Talk about this story about uh, this 11-year-old Florida kid who was simply playing in his yard. Yeah, this was last year. Um, this 11-year-old came home from school, and normally his mother is there, or if she's not, his dad is there. Um, the mom is a teacher. She's 20 minutes away. At the most, he has a couple minutes waiting for her to come home. And actually, this is a mom who is so extremely protective of her child that for <laughs> kind of a weird reason, she never gave him a key to the house because she was worried that if, uh, this is what she told me, that if um, burglars entered the house and he was there alone, he would have very little chance of getting out alive, whereas if he was outside, he was never going to be trapped in the home with the burglars. All right, so she's already thinking ahead to how can she keep her son very safe. Maybe she's not making the same decision you or I would make, but it's clearly a mom who cares about her kid. Yep. But anyways, uh, on this particular day, 
um, he gets home, and she is stuck in traffic, and her husband, who would normally be home um, quickly because he works nearby, was also on a call and couldn't get there. And so for 90 minutes, we're talking one hour and a half, and a boy who's 11 plays in his backyard. He picks up his basketball, you know, he shoots some hoops. Somebody sees him there realizes, oh, my goodness, that's a boy. He is not going inside. There's nobody home. He's by himself. Calls the cops. The cops come to the house. They find the boy there, and then they wait for the parents, okay, because clearly this is a boy who has been neglected, and neglect and abuse are sort of fused in their mind. And so when the parents finally get back, which is the hour and a half, they got there, they throw the parents into the cop car, they take them and the son over to the police station. They fingerprint the parents. They take their picture. They strip search them. They throw them in jail. And because now the parents are in jail, the boy must go with his younger brother, who was elsewhere at the time, into foster care because there is nobody at home because they, the cops are so worried about the children being neglected that they put both their parents in jail. <laughs> right? So now they are neglected, and the kids go off, and guess what? The kids are uh, in foster care for a month, for a month, because what the, what the cops said in this case is that this was an, a, you know, a poor 11-year-old child who was kept behind the home with no food, no drinks, no shelter, and no bathroom. And somehow, having to survive 90 minutes without any of these, um, and, and actually there were plenty of those because they had a hose and they had a, a shed, so they had food and they had water and shelter. They just they didn't have a bathroom. Oh, boy. Um, because somehow that constituted such a, um, an imposition, such a grave danger, that uh, the parents were criminals. And who makes that decision in the end? I mean, in the end, legally, Lenore, uh, yeah. is, is there is there sort of a, 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 a some strict ordinance or are there, are there rules? You know, I, I, I wish I could tell you this. It's such a, a mishmash because there are two different, um, I guess, courts going on at once. One is criminal court. You know, is this a crime? And the crime generally is leaving a child in danger. You're not allowed to leave a child in danger, and different um, states have different ages. In, um, but, you know, for what age you are generally allowed to leave a kid alone. In Maryland, it's 8, and in Illinois, it's a bizarre 14, 14 years old. Um, but the point is that you're allowed to leave them uh, unless they're in danger, and, and that becomes a question of, well, who determines what's dangerous to me? A kid in his own yard might be in danger of being um, bored, <laughs> you know, might be in danger of being hot. It was in Florida. But in danger of what else? Nothing, nothing that, to my mind, rises to the, the real definition of danger, which is putting him in, you know, uh, danger of life or limb. I mean, there's just no danger there. And, in fact, if he felt bad, if he needed help, he's, he's a sentient human being. He can knock on a neighbor's door if he felt like he was you know, desperately needed a bathroom or was going to faint from hunger. I mean, you know, we're not talking about uh, leaving a worm in the backyard. We're talking about leaving a person. Um, But then there's the parallel um, justice system of Child Protective Services. And in a way, it's more scary with them because they don't have to um, have a regular jury trial. Uh, to determine if somebody is guilty or not. If somebody from Child Protective Services says this was a real danger judge and we have to make sure that the child is safe, 
I think the judge can just listen to that. Uh, I wish I knew more about exactly how, um, how the systems work, and sometimes they overlap. Uh, but I can tell you that they are both um, allowed to interfere with normal, everyday parenting decisions, and they seem to be doing it in a way um, that I don't recall either protective services or the cops doing when I was a kid when my mom let me play outside. Oh, my goodness. I mean, we would have all been locked up in, in my generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went out. I mean, we were free-range kids, and everybody was a free-range kid right. in, in, in the, the, in the early the 70s. Right. No, it, yeah. it's so true. And, and Cindy and Fred, who are the names of the parents here, I wanted to just read something from you because you, you got and heard about the case from Cindy, and this was the email, and this was her explanation mm-hmm. to you. The authorities claim he had no access to water or shelter, We have an open shed in the backyard and two working sinks and two hoses. They said he had no food. He ate his snacks already. He had no bathroom, but the responding officer found our yard good enough for him to relieve himself while our son sat in a police car alone. Yeah, pretty gross. I know, it's truly gross. Yeah. Now, in, in his own yard in a state, Florida, that has no minimum age for children, to be alone. I think it's this protective right. services space, Lenora, that's so scary to people. Because in the end, the presumption of innocence and guilt, you know, at least in the criminal law, we're innocent until proven guilty. There's a grand jury trial. There's a warrant. There's probable cause. There are all these things to protect actual criminals. It's in our Constitution. But once you get to the administrative state, we're guilty until we can prove that we're innocent. Everything right. shifts. Right. Um, that's why one of the things I'm trying to do lately is to get uh, towns, cities, uh, states, eventually the federal government to pass what I call the Free Range Kids Bill of Rights, which maybe I've talked to you before about, which, um, which shifts everything back to the way I think it should be, which is this presumption of innocence. So the Free Range Kids Bill of Rights is simple. It's one sentence long. <laughs> it says, children have the right to some unsupervised time, and we have the right to give it to them without getting arrested. The problem in this situation seems to be that simply because the kid was unsupervised, suddenly he's considered in danger, um, even though there's no evidence of actual danger. And if he is in danger, that means that the parents are negligent, because why would they put their child in danger? So we have to stop criminalizing the idea that any time a child is unsupervised, automatically parents are bad and the child is in danger. And so... um, if we simply started from what you're talking about, which is the, you know, innocent until proven guilty, it's like, let's assume that parents think that kids can handle themselves walking to school, playing in the yard, waiting in the car for a couple minutes while they run in to get the pizza. Let's assume that uh, our job as onlookers and then even as, as police and as child protective service workers is to help the family. If we think the kid is in danger, we ask, are you okay, kid? Yes, I'm fine. We don't automatically assume that, oh, yay, it's like a Pokemon. Look, I caught one. Right. This one is un, you know, unsupervised. That means that the parents are bad. That means that automatically I get to throw them in jail and take away their kids. That's not the kind of town I want to live in. I want to live in a town where if the police see my child and they're worried about him, they help him as opposed to immediately throwing me in jail, which is not helping anybody. And also is is bizarre. I mean, it's based on this assumption that simply by walking along the street or playing in my yard, I am in danger as a child. That's that's not true. We're and 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 even in terms of crime, crime is down. We're at a 50-year crime low now. So if your parents let you 
play outside, ride your bike to the library. There's no reason that you should think that today's kids are more in danger. They're, they're less in danger. That is so true. And again, we're talking with Lenora Skenazy, Free Range Kids, and she's an author. And, well, Free Range Kids is is what we love talking about, and we're going to continue to. She's also a contributor to Reason.com, and her TV show, World's Worst Mom, airs on the Discovery Life channel. Lenore, thanks as always for joining us. My pleasure. You bet. And this is Lee Habib, Free Range Kids. More after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History series, brought to us, as always, by the great folks at Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, and all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their terrific and free online courses at hillsdale.edu. There are over a dozen, well over a dozen there right now. The C.S. Lewis is terrific. And my goodness, you can get a college education over the summer with your family. And today's This Day in History story comes to us from a friend of the show, Bob. Bob Crowther, that is, but we just call him Bob. Take it away. Let me tell you two stories about two men who come from my town, Chicago. Chicago, the windy city, long home to colorful citizens. Story number one. Many years ago, Al Capone virtually owned Chicago. Beginning as a two-bit bootlegger, Alphonse Scarface Capone rose through the ranks of the Southside Brackets to become king of the underworld. Capone wasn't famous for anything heroic. He was notorious for enmeshing the windy city and everything from bootleg booze and prostitution to murder. Capone had a lawyer named Easy Eddie. He was his lawyer for a good reason. Eddie was very good. He was terrific. He was the best. In fact, Eddie's skill at legal maneuvering kept Big Al out of jail for a long time. To show his appreciation, Capone paid him very well. Not only was the money big, but Eddie got special dividends. No, I'd go from rags to For instance, he and his family occupied a fenced-in mansion with live-in help and all the conveniences of the day. The estate was so large that it filled an entire Chicago city block. Eddie lived the high life of the Chicago mob and gave little consideration to the atrocity that went on around him. Eddie did have one soft spot, however. He had a son that he loved dearly. Eddie saw to it that his young son had the best of everything. Clothes, cars, and a good education. Nothing was withheld. Price was no object. And despite his involvement with organized crime, Eddie even tried to teach him right from wrong. Eddie wanted his son to be a better man than he was. 
Yet with all his wealth and influence, there were two things he couldn't give his son. He couldn't pass on a good name and a good example. One day, Easy Eddie reached a difficult decision. Easy Eddie wanted to rectify wrongs he had done. He decided he would go to the authorities and tell the truth about Al Scarface Capone, clean up his tarnished name, and offer his son some semblance of integrity. To do this, he would have to testify against the mob, and he knew that the cost would be great. So he testified. Within the year, Easy Eddie's life ended in a blaze of gunfire on a lonely Chicago street. But in his eyes, he had given his son the greatest gift he had to offer at the greatest price he would ever pay. Story number two. World War II produced many heroes. One such man was Lieutenant Commander Butch O'Hare. He was a fighter pilot assigned to the aircraft carrier Lexington in the South Pacific. One day, his entire squadron was sent on a mission. After he was airborne, he looked at his fuel gauge and realized that someone had forgotten to top off his fuel tank. He would not have enough fuel to complete his mission and get back to his ship. His flight leader told him to return to the carrier. Return to the ship. Over. Reluctantly, he dropped out of formation and headed back to the fleet. Yeah, roger that. As he was returning to the mothership, he saw something that turned his blood cold. A squadron of Japanese aircraft was speeding their way toward the American fleet. The American fighters were gone on a sortie and the fleet was all but defenseless. He couldn't reach his squadron and bring them back in time to save the fleet, nor could he warn the fleet of the approaching danger. There was only one thing to do. He must somehow divert them from the fleet. Alright, let's do this. Laying aside all thoughts of personal safety, he dove into the formation of Japanese planes. Wing-mounted 50 calibers blazed as he charged in, attacking one surprise enemy plane and then another. Butch wove in and out of the now broken formation and fired at as many planes as possible until all his ammunition was finally spent. Undaunted, he continued the assault he dove at the planes, trying to clip a wing or tail in hopes of damaging as many enemy planes as possible and rendering them unfit to fly. Finally, the exasperated Japanese squadron took off in another direction. Oh my god, I'm alive! I did it! Deeply relieved, Butch O'Hare and his tattered fighter limped back to the carrier. Upon arrival, he reported in and related the event surrounding his return. The film from the gun camera mounted on his plane told the tale. It showed the extent of Butch's daring attempt to protect his fleet. He had in fact destroyed five enemy aircraft. This took place on February 20th, 1942, and for that action, Butch became the Navy's first ace of World War II 
and the first naval aviator to win the Congressional Medal of Honor. For heroism and extraordinary achievement in aerial flight, for distinguished service as pilot of an airplane of a bombing squad, his courageous actions were in keeping with the highest traditions of the United States. A year later, Butch was killed in aerial combat at the age of 29. His hometown would not allow the memory of this World War II hero to fade, and today, O'Hare Airport in Chicago is named in tribute to the courage of this great man. So the next time you find yourself at O'Hare International, give some thought to visiting Butch's memorial displaying his statue and his Medal of Honor. It's located between Terminals 1 and 2. So what the hell do these two stories have to do with each other? Butch O'Hare was Easy Eddie's son. And again, on this day in history in 1942, Butch O'Hare became the first naval recipient of the Medal of Honor in World War II. And thank you for that story, Bob. And that was always the goal here on Our American Stories. We tell you stories, you tell us backstories. And it doesn't get better than that. And Bob's a friend of the show. And Bob, we owe you a dinner the next time we're in Chicago. And if you've got a story, folks, a father-son story, a mother-daughter story, any story, love, loss, forgiveness, death, send it to us at ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll make it happen. We'll turn it into a story here on Our American Stories. American Stories, and today we have on one of our favorite regular features, Marriage on the Mind, with Deb Wolniak, our marriage coach. Marriage on the Mind is a little different this time around, because rather than a couple, Deb spoke with Paige, a 24-year-old single woman that's chosen to remain single for the last four years. Why? To help her to know who she is and what she's looking for in a spouse. We start off hearing Paige explain her views on dating and why she chose to change her methods. So Paige, you have a really unique view on dating. Tell us what that is. Well, for me, growing up, I was a bit of a serial dater. I was one of those girls that always needed a boyfriend in order to feel complete and feel that I was beautiful and worthy. And so when I was 20 years old, it hit me um, as I had a boyfriend. It hit me that 
I could do it on my own and that I could just uh, be single. And so I ended things with the man that I was seeing, and I've been single since then. And so it's been a little over four years that I've been single. And I, of course, still go on dates. I think that going on dates is is normal, um, but it's I just haven't taken that plunge, so to speak, on calling a boy my boyfriend just because I feel that uh, once I do, I want it to be someone that I can really see myself with for a long time um, and, right. and actually marry. And so I've just been uh, doing my thing the last couple of years, but it's been really good for me. I found that for me, when I was in relationships prior to taking this time to just be on my own these last few years, I would conform to whatever it is that I thought that the man wanted of me. And so I almost felt like I was clay. I was just so easily malleable because I I just wanted to be loved. And I would have been the exact woman that I knew that they wanted. And so, for example, one guy was really into indie music. And so all of a sudden I got really into indie music and I became this indie chick. Um, the next guy that I was dating, he was um, a little more gangster. And so I was listening to gangster rap and I was, I, I just saw myself saying things that I never would have said with the previous guy. And I think that once you're changing yourself so much that you don't even recognize yourself in a relationship and your family and your friends don't recognize you, that's when there is a need to take a step back and reevaluate. And so for me, I felt that I was, I was just like Play-Doh. I was easily tossed by the wind to and fro to be whoever it is that they wanted. And I didn't want my personality to be like hokey pokey, one foot in, one foot out, you know, based on who I was with. And that's when I knew, you know what, Paige, just take some time on your own. Be who it is that God created you to be, who uh, you were born to be. And so the last couple of years to really find my own voice, I don't feel that I'll I'll have to change myself significantly in order to be loved by by a specific man. I want to be with someone that loves me because I'm me. And it took me the last couple of years to really to really realize that, but I'm so glad that I did. So for those that might not be a faith page, what would you say would be some of those non-negotiables that you might suggest to them or some of the things they might want to think about? I absolutely believe that it's important to to find a balance on the things that you believe and the things that a future mate can believe. Um, for me, I think that it's important to have those non-negotiables and things that you don't want to compromise on, um, but they should, of course, be very important things. They shouldn't be based on the color of his hair or his height or things like that. Um, for me, I'm looking for a man of faith, a man of integrity, a man of courage, a man that I know can protect me and who loves me. Those are some things that I know I don't want to compromise on, and mm-hmm. I think that it's good for, for all women to have have a couple things that they're at least looking for in, in a future mate. And for those that are not of faith, what would you advise them on? Um, is it as simple as taking out a pencil and paper and making a list, or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I don't have a a physical list or anything that I'm matching up boys to. But, of course, I think that there's things that you should look for, and I think that a lot of it is natural, too. 
Um, if you enjoy doing A, B, and C, then you're naturally going to be attracted to someone who, you know, has at least somewhat like-minded thoughts as you. Um, the problem was when I was growing up, you know, in my late teens, I felt that I didn't exactly know who I was yet. And so that's why I felt that um, I was, uh, I wasn't hesitant at all to date, you know, A, B, and C types of guys. Mm-hmm. I was very open to dating whoever, and I, um, I found that now I know exactly who I am, and I feel that I know the type of guy that I'm looking for, and so it's, mm-hmm. um, it's been really beautiful. And now we are joined by Deb Wolniak. And Deb, as always, thanks for doing what you do for us. And I wanted to ask you a quick question, because I think everybody's thinking this listening, and that is, why is it that you think people change themselves for a relationship? We heard Paige confess this. It took a lot of bravery for her to say that, because I think people do it all the time. Why do people do this, though? And do you think in the end it makes them happy? I'm going to tell you what, our American culture has a tendency to put a lot of pressure on young women um, and even girls, even as young as eight years old, to really identify with how they want them to be. And there are studies that are shown that young girls at age eight actually know what they want to do in life, even just as a career. But because of social pressures or parent pressures or society, they end up changing their mind to mold into what they feel society says is okay. We do this in our relationships as well. You know, some people may say, you know, it may be one of those things where, oh, you have to earn a certain amount of money, or you have to be a certain career, or you have to be with a certain guy. And that is something that is difficult for a lot of people because we don't always get to attain our perfect dream on the financial, or we have limitations, or we never reach that goal. And a lot of times women, she made a very good point, do not make that list. I would even encourage uh, young women at the age of 15 or 16 to start writing down what they like in relationships. Um, you know, what, who, is it, who are they in their lives? What is their personality like? You know, do some self-reflection and continue to grow and help yourself be as strong as you can be. So one of the acronyms I love in, in the strong statement is you need to know yourself. You need to know your talent. You need to know how you hold relationships. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future? Sometimes that narrative actually really influences your relationships, and you sometimes go with opposites attract. And if that's the case, maybe you need to look at how that's affecting your relationship, along with what kind of goals do you have? When I say the word narrative in the, in the acronym STRONG, that's something, too, that's really important. You need to understand yourself and grow as a person and that's last part of the acronym is growing, is understand who you are so that you can really lay forth the best possible path of growth, growth for yourself as a person, and then as you're as healthy as you can, bringing in someone else into a personal relationship and growing together so that you can be the best, strong team you can be. And that's also really exciting because as you see yourself grow, and then you grow into a relationship, and you have that connection not only with yourself but with that other person, that creates a very powerful team relationship you need for a long-term marriage. So why did I interview Paige as a non-married person right now? Because she's setting a really strong example for a lot of women to wake up, get to know themselves, be as strong as they can be in who they are as a person, and go after those goals they're looking for in what matters to them. 
So when that person comes along and they're like, wow, you're amazing. I would love to be married with you someday. There's that those common sense of interest that there's appreciation for those talents and they can move along together as a team. You does bet. that make sense? You bet it does. And the great investor Charlie Munger of Berkshire Hathaway was once asked about the best way to get a good spouse. And Charlie answered, the best single way is, deser- is to deserve a good spouse because a good spouse is by definition not nuts. And I think that's interesting talking about that deserve a good spouse. And it just sounds like, you know, Paige was trying to find her own voice, her own life before merging her life with another person's life. And I think that's just so critical. You know, I had a, and I'll leave you on this note, uh, uh, Deb, but I had a really dear friend who was a serial dater. And finally, we couldn't take it anymore. He was a different person, dressing different ways. And finally, he found this girl he was crazy about. And we said, well, what should I do? And we said, be yourself. And he said, who is that? Like, he had no Aww. idea. So he actually Aww. did take his, himself off the market for a couple of years because he had yeah. just not, he had no idea who he was. He was auditioning yeah. for different girls for his father. And his father wanted to be a lawyer. That's why he was in law school. Everything he was doing for someone else. So it's not just women who suffer this. Ultimately, this is a human condition of d- discovering identity uh, deeply. That's your faith identity, your your job career, your personal hobbies. The hardest thing in, in life. Deb, as always, thanks for joining us. This one was a little different, but my goodness. In order to have healthy marriages, we need to have strong, healthy people entering those marriages. Thanks for all you do for us, Deb. Thank you, Lee. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, Our Marriage on the Mind. And we heard from Paige, a single woman just trying to get herself together so she can prepare herself for the man that might become her husband.